Heavenly Father and Lord God, in the stillness of this morning hour, we want to turn our hearts to Thee. Everything around us is so changeable, so variable, subject to time and chance, it would seem. Yet Thy Word is a rock that we can count on, is a foundation that will never be moved. Heavenly Father, what a blessing it is in these uncertain times to be able to know that we have one that we can go to at any time. We can enter thy presence. We can entreat thee. We can seek thy face. And from that meeting, we can leave changed people. Heavenly Father, we want to pray now for those that we have already mentioned in this morning's announcements, those that have grim prognoses of health, those suffering with cancer. But Heavenly Father, we also want to remember those that are suffering from chronic conditions as well and from long seasons of, of sickness and difficulty. We want to also remember in prayer unto thee those that are elderly and can no longer gather with us. We also want to remember those that are grieving and those that are suffering. Heavenly Father, our minds and hearts go to our brethren in Ukraine as well who are suffering uh, because of this, this catastrophe of war that has descended upon their country. Heavenly Father, be with them and let thy word go forth through their lives that the world may see a different sort of people, a people whose faith and trust is in thee. Heavenly Father, as we gather our hearts now to look into thy word, we want to ask for thy presence now and the special anointing of thy spirit upon us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The word of the Lord is open this morning to the 16th chapter of Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 16. It's a lengthy chapter, and so I'd like to read uh, the second half of it. I'd like to begin at verse 13. Luke, the 16th chapter, beginning at the 13th verse. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. He cannot serve God and mammon. And the Pharisees also, who were covetous, heard all these things, and they derided him. And he said unto them, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail. Whosoever putteth away his wife and marrieth another committeth adultery. And whosoever marrieth her that is put away from her husband committeth adultery. There was a certain rich man, which was clothed in purple and fine linen, and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate, full of sores, 
and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water, and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. I've read to the end of the chapter. Let's kneel for a word of prayer. Bow down and worship the Lord together. Almighty Judge of all the earth, Creator, Source, Author, and Finisher of all, we come into your awesome presence, unworthy, but for the blood of your Son. Lord, your Son that came into this world with truth as cutting, as sharp, piercing through the fog of religion, complacency, making it clear that we need to make a choice and that choice matters, not only life, but in death. Lord, this morning as we have chosen to be here to open, may we open our hearts to not only hear your word, but to allow it to change us. Speak to us clearly from through your serpent's lips, and Father, we pray that all who would hear would abandon the false gods, the good life, the comforts, the things that distract and keep us from a living relationship with you, would make the hard choices in order to have a healthy, right, 
relationship with you. Father, we have mentioned already those that are in need of healing. Lord, we pray for Lily, Lord, for spiritual healing as well. Lord, for her soul. Lord, we know that many of these things you bring into our life, even the corruption and decay, that we might look up and realize that we are not in control. Even the devastation of this storm that has gone through shows us that with all our sophistication and all our technology, we are not in control. Father, we pray that we would look up and we would repent while we have this opportunity. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. The portion of scripture that we have before us this morning is, I'd say, not unfamiliar to most of us here. It's in the middle of a section of teaching from the kindest man that ever lived. His words now are some 2,000 years old. And perhaps from the portion we've read this morning, you may be expecting some sort of a fire and brimstone sermon or discussion on heaven and hell. But I believe with the Lord's help that that's not where he would like us to spend our time, though it is interesting to note that that kindest man, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, actually spoke more on hell than anyone else in the Bible. Like it said of the Apostle Paul, he did not shun to declare unto us the whole counsel of God. We've heard about Leon this morning, and after 20 years of cancer remission, that it has returned. What would you think of the doctor who would tell him, oh, no, no, it's not back, you're fine. You're just a little dizzy, a little unsteady on your feet. Nothing to do with your cancer. Will we consider that doctor kind, or would we consider that doctor unjust and cruel? hiding from someone the true facts of the way things are. And so it was with the Lord. You know, I'm reminded of something that happened many years ago when I was in um, Black Creek Pioneer Village, not too far from here. And in that assembly of buildings, it's kind of a mock village for those that may not have visited it, uh, historical buildings and homes that are uh, in the way when uh, there's development going on, what they do is they, they, the government pays to have those buildings relocated to this area um, called Black Creek Pioneer Village, and those, those buildings are put together sort of in a mock village, and there's different shops and uh, businesses and even a church and a schoolhouse and homes. And one thing I noticed when I was there, they have, they have one shop, which is pretty interesting. It's called a print shop. And there you can see what it was like to produce a, uh, a paper, a tabloid, in that period of time in Upper Canada, which would have been, I think, the late, late 1800s, 1880s, something like that, I think the, the village is set in. 
And you can see all sorts of things uh, the print from the printer's trade. Movable type, those little bits of letters and spaces and dashes set up backwards in a frame, then inked, then a piece of paper put on top and flipped over, pressed down, and then the proper sheet finished and set aside to dry. But that wasn't the thing that caught my attention. That, that part of, of it I, I, I knew already. But one thing I, I hadn't really considered, and it was this, the content of what was written on those pages. There had been a visit of uh, Queen Victoria to some, on some occasion of state, and the writer had taken great pains to record exactly what she was wearing, what the dignitaries were there, but, but specifically I found it really interesting to see how each detail of her clothes and how she appeared was recorded. And I thought, of course, before uh, photography became commonplace, um, before um, a decent color reproduction right, in, by the printing press was possible, the only way you could convey those things would be with words. And so through a combination of reading and the reader's imagination and what they already knew, they could assemble in their mind a picture, uh, a picture of what that event actually looked like. But it depended on both the understanding, the ability to read, of course, but the understanding of the person reading and the things that they already knew to put together that picture in their minds. God is a lot like that monarch of old. God told Moses in the mountain, no man has seen my face and lived. He was invisible to our sight. And so everything that we understand about God, especially through the Old Testament, as we, as we flip through, when you look at this, this book, you know, two-thirds of it, at least, probably more, is devoted to the Old Testament. And all of those stories and those accounts are recorded to give us a picture of what God is like. But we only catch little bits and pieces. A description in one place. An attribute that's talked about in another place. And so the result was in the, in the minds of those Old Testament saints was this kind of composite picture, a picture put together from pieces, incomplete, from which they would try to, in their mind at least, come to a conclusion of what God was like. And it was incomplete and they knew that. And sometimes it seems that when you read through the Old Testament, the pictures are very different. Isaiah talks about a suffering servant. Other prophets talk about a coming king. All of these different pictures that the reader now had to assemble in their mind. That all changed with the coming of Jesus Christ. He was not just the image bearer, of the image of God, as we're all made in the image of God, but he was actually the image of God come in the flesh. If you want to know what God is like, you need to look to Jesus. And so when Jesus speaks, it's incumbent on all of us to listen if we're interested in what God is like.
You see, we understand what people are like, aren't we? Don't we? That's why I would say we all lock our doors at night. That's why in a crowd we keep our hand over our wallet just in case someone may help themselves. That's why if we leave our phone someplace, we figure that it, there's a good chance it may not be there when we come back. And when the opposite is true, aren't we pleasantly surprised? We know a lot about human nature. War, perhaps, is the best place to view human nature in its extremes. Cowardice and heroism, compassion and ruthlessness, sacrifice, selfishness, death and life. We're familiar with the human position, but God we know far less about. <coughs> In fact, God himself says, he is unknowable in the, in, the, in the complete sense. We cannot fully understand what God is like because our minds can't hold that. You see, God is so great that he encompasses not only matter but time itself. He's so great that everything subsists in him. That's how big he is. And so it makes no sense that the thing contained could contain the thing that's containing it. But Jesus had to come. And he didn't just come as a baby, and he didn't just come to die on the cross. He came also to live and to show us what the Father was like. And so he explains things about himself. He explains something that I think is completely provable by human experience. The first verse we read together says, no servant can serve two masters. You see, a, a servant or slave is completely owned by his or her master. The claim is exclusive. And there was a rather funny Shakespearean play about a servant who was trying to serve two masters. For those of you that may remember that, I don't even know if they teach Shakespeare in school anymore. But it was this, the, the comedic circumstances that happened when this servant tried to serve two different masters at the same time without the other one knowing about it. The irony, of course, is that many people, I think, try to do that today with God. Sundays, we'll devote to him. But he better not come calling during the week. That's my time. says, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is an old word which simply means wealth or money. Those that have tried to serve both have failed miserably, usually on both accounts. They've ended up getting nothing from God and, and ended also in bankruptcy at the end. And this even stinks in the nose of the world. You know, those that have used the name of Christ and got wealth for themselves, usually by misleading or ripping off other people, nobody likes that. Christ himself took nothing. There was only one thing in the world that he owned. 
Everything else was borrowed. The one thing that he owned was the cross. That was his. The tomb he borrowed. The donkey on the way to the cross he borrowed. Where he slept. Wherever someone would give him space. And when no one gave him a place to sleep, he slept out under the stars. But he served God completely. You see, the religious establishment back then, it says they were covetousness. They were covetous. That just simply means greedy. Looking always for gain. And of course, this sort of a teacher didn't fit within their paradigm of the world. I'm sure at first they found Christ uh, maddeningly confusing. They were looking for ways perhaps where they could use him or manipulate him or or uh, shut him up even, and nothing worked against this man. There was no lever that they could use to get him to shift his opinion. He simply served God. And at the root of all of that, Christ exposed it. He just simply says, ye are they which justify yourselves before men. Christ also said something that is, is shocking when it was pointed out to me. He says, you that love honor one of another, you cannot believe. Really? You that love honor one of another, so people who love the praise of people, can't believe. You know what? It's completely true. Faith is impossible for those who look to others for their affirmation. See, faith has an integral part of it, and that is courage. You have to have the courage to admit what you do not know, and you have to have the courage to admit that the solution to that must be outside of yourself. That's the beginning of faith. But to those that look to other people for their affirmation, they're never going to have the courage to go down that path. And so Christ simply says you won't be able to believe. It's impossible for you. Of course, our world that we live in right now is perhaps the most insecure as a result of all of this. You only have to spend about five seconds on Instagram to realize that people do things to be seen of other people and to receive acclamation from them. Christ never did anything for public fame. It's true that there were periods of time in his life where he was famous, where people flocked to see him. But he kept on doing what he had always been doing, and there came a time then when the multitudes also left. And he had to even turn to the twelve and say, will you also go away? His teachings would certainly make him unpopular today. I mean, just the one teaching on divorce would be sufficient to empty probably half the churches if they would openly proclaim it. A hard word, a hard saying. But what's the alternative? Are families and children more secure and happier today with all of our social freedoms? The licensed society has given itself to live the way that it chooses outside of God's commands? I'd say no. You see, life was actually much more difficult perhaps a hundred years ago. But I think children had a better picture 
<clears throat> of what love was like, what faithfulness meant, and what God had actually intended when he put the first man and the first woman together. Now, we have people, leaders, even in the country, who don't even seem to know what a woman is. Ridiculous. But this is what happens when we abandon the things that God teaches. God does not try to explain himself or justify himself. He just simply says, read the Ten Commandments. They're just statements. No reasons given, simply statements. Some people have called them the user manual for the human race. If you follow these steps, you're insured of maximum uh, performance happiness. And it's true. Those that have neglected those things have also experienced the consequences of that. But where I'd like to spend a little bit of time with the Lord's help is this one section where it talks about the rich man and Lazarus. Income disparity, the rich and the poor, have been with us since the earliest days of humanity. <clears throat> Christ himself said it won't stop being that way until he comes to set everything right. He says, the poor you'll have with you always. Lately, this inequality has attracted the, uh, the, the view of those in, um, uh, on social media and in the, in the public sphere. And there's a lot of discussion now about how these inequalities should be addressed. What should be done? Why is it that we have certain people that own so much and others that own so little? Christ doesn't try to explain that here. Did you notice that? He just simply presents it as a fact. There was a rich man and there was a poor man. The rich man, we don't even know his name. The poor man is given a common name of that time period. Lazarus was his name and just simply says he was a beggar. <coughs> he, had, he lacked the ability to care for himself. He had to depend on the kindness of others. That was his only recourse. There was no social safety net in those days. And so he placed himself at a spot where he thought he may be able to receive some benefit outside of the gate. Of course, back then, <clears throat> yeah, much like it is today, gated communities. A, a, a wall around the, the rich man's property. And this beggar simply sat by the gate of it, hoping that perhaps from the excess inside those walls, there would be a few crumbs left over for him and someone would feel sorry for him and toss him a scrap or give him some leftovers. And instead he received nothing. Absolutely nothing. The only comfort he had was there were some local stray dogs that came by and licked his sores, provide him with a little bit of relief. It doesn't tell us anything more about the life of either of them, either the rich man or <clears throat> the poor man Lazarus. It just simply says they both died. And I'm sure this scene of the death of these two couldn't be more different. Someone would have come by perhaps one morning and seen that bundle of rags lying next to the gate and not moving, 
And perhaps half a day later, someone would have noticed that that bundle of rags had not moved. And that poor beggar was no longer living. And so the local garbageman would have simply added him to the pile in the back of his cart, and he would have been carted off. If he was in Jerusalem to the valley of Hinnom, where they threw the rest of the garbage. He was gone without a trace. (coughs) The only difference was perhaps the front of the rich man's gate was a little bit cleaner. But the scene that happened after he died It says, it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. We don't know much about angels. I'd say about 90% of what you see depicted on greeting cards and in Hollywood movies has absolutely nothing to do with what the Bible talks about angels. But we do know that they are heavenly messengers sent by God for specific tasks. And this beggar that no one had taken note of while he was alive. We don't even read his family ministering to him. He camped out at the gate of that rich man. When he died, for whatever reason, angels were sent by God to take this pitiful beggar to that place of comfort that's simply called Abraham's bosom. Now, to the Jew, that would have been significant. Abraham was the father of their family line, the source, the one who was at the highest of the the peak. Even Moses came from Abraham. So to have such a special position, to be sitting in the lap of the great father of the nation, but to be totally unnoticed here below would have been significant to those listeners that heard this for the very first time. Sometime later, and it doesn't tell us how long, it says simply, the rich man died and was buried. I'm sure that the preparations for his funeral were both lavish and uh, noteworthy. Everyone would have known that this great man had passed away. Everyone would have known, perhaps, uh, when his will was opened and his inheritance uh, was distributed. Perhaps there were some some, uh, generous gifts after he died. Of course, no one seems to have been able to pry it out of his fingers while he was alive. And it certainly would have been a thing of note in that community. In that time period, uh, sometimes professional mourners were, were hired to make noise at the funeral because, of course, uh, this sort of wild lamentation is very common in the East. It's the way, the appropriate way of showing grief. Here in the West, we favor more of a stoicism, right? Um, we keep our emotions in track, try not to, uh, to let too much out. But there it all comes out. You only have to watch some of the newscasts of these poor unfortunate people that lose loved ones either to war or whatever and the, and the, the loud lamentation that accompanies it. Everyone would have noticed when the rich man died. But it says simply, he was buried. That was it. His body was laid in its fancy tomb with the proper procedures. But then it tells us the scene flips and it says, in hell he lifted, he lift up his eyes being in torments 
and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Can you imagine the shock? Waking up on the other side of the grave. See, here Jesus pulls aside the curtain for us briefly and allows us a little glimpse into what happens when we cross over from this life into the next. Can you imagine the shock of that man? First of all, waking up in torments. I'm sure he thought himself a good Jewish man who had properly obeyed the laws as they were laid out for him by the religious authorities. The shock of waking up in torments and then seeing and recognizing Abraham, how he recognized him, I don't know. But perhaps in that next life, we don't need to ask so many questions. We know these things. It says we will know even as we are known. And imagine the shock of seeing who was sitting in the bosom of Abraham. Can it be that beggar that was outside of my gate? What did he do to get in there? How is this possible? There will be a lot of surprises, I believe, when we, when we cross over. Those that have attracted fame and fortune here and have been the talk of everyone will have a lot less significance over there. And perhaps some of the less significant ones, maybe even in this congregation, will have positions of glory and honor there. We're poor judges of that while we're here below. But he sees them, and as his pattern was in life, so it seems to have continued in death, the first thing he thought of was himself. It began with himself. He says, I'm in torment here. Send Lazarus. Why Lazarus? I don't know. Perhaps it's the only other one he saw. Send Lazarus, have him dip the tip of his finger in cold water and bring it here to cool my tongue. What's that in, a, in context of an eternal suffering? Perhaps he asked for just a small thing, hoping that that would be granted. I know when I'm thirsty, I pour water down my throat. I don't take it a drop at a time. Listen to Abraham's answer. He says, son, son. He acknowledged him as a descendant of his, but now separated. You see, earthly bloodlines don't matter in the world to come. There is neither Jew nor Greek, barbarian, bond, free, male, female, all of the categories that people like to sort themselves into here below. Yes, even the, the ones of identity politics, they mean absolutely nothing in the face of a God who's created us all. And the great leveling will happen one day, but it won't happen under the authority of man. It will happen under the authority of God. Son, remember. That word, I think, will be the most painful word in hell. The most awful word in hell is that you will still retain memory. In fact, I think your memory probably will be even sharper than it is here below. That memory will cause pain if you are separated from God. That the things that I beat myself up about the most are the things that I could have changed, that I could have done a little If I had only done this thing differently, ugh, I could have avoided all of this hassle, pain, embarrassment, whatever. If I had just done this, 
all of that will be clear on the other side. Remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things and likewise Lazarus' evil things. But now he is comforted and thou art tormented. He says, remember, while you were here below, you had it pretty good. And Lazarus had it pretty bad. But now he has received comfort and you've received torment. And perhaps that was the only sin that that man committed. That he had the opportunity to do good and didn't do it. The Bible simply says, He that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it's sin. And those are uncomfortable words, especially for me. How often have I looked for a more convenient time to speak to someone or a, a better opportunity? Or I've been conscious of my own faults and felt that that might disqualify me if I was to talk to someone else about the gospel. It's easier to speak about the gospel from a wooden tub like this than in my day-to-day -day life. And I know I will give account for those things that I have not said as well as the things that I did. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed. That's an old-fashioned word that just simply means a gap or a space. There's a big separation between these two places, one that no one can cross over. The rich man seems to have grasped this and taken it in, and so he makes one more request, his last request. He says, I pray thee therefore, Father, Father Abraham, that thou would send him, Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brethren. I've got five brothers at home that have not yet died. Take Lazarus. They all knew who he was. Every time they came to visit, they went past his filthy little corner. Send Lazarus back and tell them about this place so they don't come here too. There was at least that much compassion in the man that he didn't want to see his brothers end up where he had been. Abraham simply says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. God had revealed himself and he had given enough. He had made overtures already to reach out to fallen men and women. And there is sufficient in what he has done to provoke a response. How much more for us that have also the words of Christ, not just Moses and the prophets. Let them hear him. And the rich man's response is one I think that we can all identify with. He simply says, no, no, nay, Father Abraham. But if one went back from the dead, if someone was to get up out of that coffin or claw their way back to the ground, out of the ground and go back to those people that he knew in life. Then they would listen. And Abraham says something very chilling. He just simply says, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one rose from the dead. Can you imagine that? A dead one returned to life? But think about it. Do Abraham's words seem unrealistic to you? 
I'm a realist, I think, at heart. I look at the things around me and try to make sense of them. Don't you think that would have happened? In fact, there was another time. There was a Lazarus that was raised from the dead. It happened in Bethany. After three or four days in the, in the tomb, he got up and walked out. And what was the reaction of those Pharisees and Sadducees that heard of this? They wanted to kill him again. <laughs> Isn't that ridiculous? One brought back from the dead, and they wanted to kill him again because he was a threat to their power. And now we can see how it is impossible for those who look to men and women for their affirmation to ever believe. May the Lord add whatever was lacking to what was said. And he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded the one rose from the dead. It's fascinating to me how timeless God's word is and how people have not changed. We come up with fancy new words to describe our excuses for not believing. And we think that we are intellectual. We come up, we're, we're, we're so... Um, because we studied so-and-so, who quote so-and-so, who said so-and-so so many years ago that we think we're now intelligent. And, and that was very much the Pharisees. They were constantly quoting other um, experts in the law and their opinions. Here, in this one verse, we see the very same warmed-over excuse for thousands of years that God, if you really exist, you should give me more evidence. I have a right to be a skeptic because you haven't given me sufficient evidence, and that's why I don't surrender my life to you and follow you. And here in this one verse, Jesus clearly pokes through that flimsy smoke and mirrors, that paper tiger, and says, look, even if someone rose from the dead, you wouldn't consider that sufficient evidence. Jesus did rise from the dead. Another Lazarus did as well, as was said, and that's not sufficient. What Jesus did here is he points to our hearts our motivations, the things that we keep under wraps because we do want the honor of men. And that what does keep us, what we think is a more comfortable present circumstance because our sin is not exposed. Our, we, can, we can manage and curate a certain image, whether it be on Instagram or otherwise. But... Even back then, they didn't have Instagram, and they're plenty able to, to manage people's perception, whether it was clothing or, or whether it was what was said, and making everybody feel that I'm doing pretty good. But God knows the truth of what's going on inside. And he's given evidence. He's sent his son. His son has come. He has died for even that hidden sin that no one knows 
and has rose again to prove that that sin can be forgiven, that we do not have to end up in this place of torment because God in his mercy, because he lovingly came and said, this is what's gonna happen if you don't give the cure to cancer that his blood is. And so this morning, I want to, knowing the terror of the Lord, persuade you, please, this is not an idle hour that we pass in religion's observance. This is a moment of truth being shared from God's timeless word into your life, which is rapidly passing by, and we need to take it to heart because there will come a time like the rich man where there will be no more opportunity to change. With that, we'll conclude this morning's service.